it goes without saying at this point that climate risks can create significant financial risks, operating and financial risks that need to be considered. And if they're material under U.S. law, they need to be disclosed. ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, on the ESG Report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. This is part two of a two-part podcast series on the recently released Hughes-Hubbard ESG Resource Guide. Part one is available if you haven't listened to it. You don't need to listen to part one first, but it would certainly help you have a much better understanding of the ESG Resource Guide and the comprehensive nature of what Hughes-Hubbard has put out in this most excellent resource. I know you'll enjoy this part two. Andrew and Sandra, if I could perhaps ask you guys to focus on what are some of the key ESG topics you see in the corporate sector that you covered in the resource guide? Just kind of adding on to what the conversation you were just having about operating companies. To me, of course, there's a lot of technical points. There's a lot of new disclosure regulations in many jurisdictions. And Europe is way out ahead of the United States, of course, in that regard. But I think really the really important thing for companies to kind of, before they jump into technical compliance concerns and how to, how to orchestrate that, they need to understand that this is a topic that involves governance, strategy, and mission and culture questions. And I think that the chapter in the book that's about stakeholder capitalism is probably, we try not to be too, you know, focus too much on the past and history. We try to focus on like what people need to know in the here and now to do something today that's productive for them. But we did go a little bit into what was the theory about how corporations organized themselves and pointed themselves in a direction before, and what does it mean now that we've shifted from sort of the freedom of shareholder supremacy kind of philosophy to stakeholder capitalism. When we were doing that chapter, I don't think it made it into the book, but my favorite quote possibly that I came across was the former dean of the business school at Oxford said, the purpose of business is not to create profit. The purpose of business is to create profitable solutions to the problems of people and planet. Companies do well to start first with taking a step back and saying, what are the objectives that we're pointing ourselves at? And then how do we do those things better and with more sensitivity to the many evolving ESG topics in this time that we live in. In terms of topics, I think it really is difficult to pick one or two because I think a lot of this is based on risk assessment. So I would say a lot of it is a renewed focus. And I think this applies to, to most issuers and most finance folks out there looking at risk a little differently. And also, I think in terms of the story, the investment story that a company may present for itself or that financiers and investors are presenting to the folks who are entrusting funds to them for investment, that they're going to want to be able to tell. They will want to have a narrative and a story that explains, we looked at risks, we looked at, say, where we would be in five years and 10 years, because we're you know aware now for good or bad, we're aware that there are impacts. You know, The biggest one that gets the headlines is climate, but there's obviously other ones out there. And that 
dealing with these trends is something that really is part of the trust that investors and stockholders and lenders are putting in a C-suite executives. And it, it's something that in terms of the issues, I think it's really going to be being even more focused on risk and strategy and mitigation efforts, looking ahead to see, you know, are we going to have to take, there's, a, there's obviously a lot of treatment in the, in the new SEC proposed rules about being very clear and the very direct and very clear disclosures about mitigation efforts, the cost of mitigation, the cost of remediation, the cost of, it's a lot of focus on making sure that people don't get surprised down the road that you're hit with, you know, the equivalent of an environmental super fund or a climate change super fund issue five, 10 years down the line. So from my standpoint, it's less one issue than it is, you know, maybe a more renewed focus on looking a little bit further than just the end of the quarter or the annual results and looking at where do folks want to be in a couple of years. And we saw that with, I think, the engine number one successful effort to, to get folks onto, you know, oil and gas major boards based on not on a feel good strategy, but based on they said, this is what's best for that company. The oil and gas majors had to really look at long term strategy. So I think risk mitigation planning are really the biggest um, and the biggest focuses I see currently. Ryan, if I could turn to you, how do you assess the regulatory landscape at this point? We joked a bit internally when we were planning to put out the guide that essentially by the time we put it out, it would probably potentially be out of date in some respects. And that's because it's it's an understatement to say that the regulatory environment's evolving. It is very significantly and very rapidly. I think Sandra alluded to the fact that there is a difference between what we see in Europe and what we see in the U.S. The, the EU is, I would say, more advanced than the U.S. in a lot of these ESG regulatory efforts. You have the EU taxonomy, which is intended to limit greenwashing and identify environmentally friendly activities, uh, economic activities. You have the sustainable finance disclosure regulations in the EU. And you have an expansion of corporate sustainability reporting for large companies in the EU. So many ESG-related topics have been part of the disclosure environment here for longer, but they are continuing to evolve and expand the number and types of companies that are required to report on these different topics. Whereas in the U.S., obviously, we have the recent SEC-proposed rules which should be finalized sometime in the, the not-too-distant future. And then other jurisdictions also throughout Asia, the UK, is requiring large companies to report against the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures methodology. So there is a lot of country-specific, regional, regulatory evolving, uh, and I think we'll, we'll continue to see that. And it comes into, comes into force in different periods of time depending on the size of company, the industry. But for the next five to 10 years, I think it's fair to say the regulatory environment is going to evolve quite significantly. Sandra, if I could turn to you and ask, how should ESG be viewed by funds and investment advisors? Just to pivot from what Brian was just talking about, the U.S. is definitely sort of a lagging indicator here. You know, in the U.S., it's the private sector that's pulling companies along to make better disclosures and to examine their practices better. We can talk about how complex the regulatory environment is today. One of the things that's important to say sometimes in the United States 
to reporting companies, whether they be investment companies, investment advisors, or operating companies, is that I think we've turned the corner to, we no longer have to ask the question about whether climate impacts can be, have financial impacts, whether they can be financially relevant. There was a lot of resistance in the U.S. for a long time. People were trying to hang on that question saying, why are we even addressing these? This is just because we want to be nice to the environment and have clean air. But no, it's also because it goes without saying at this point that climate risks can create significant financial risks, operating and financial risks that need to be considered. And if they're material under U.S. law, they need to be disclosed. So that's where we are in general. And that's still true also for where we are with investment advisors and investment funds. The climate for them is that there's some additional disclosure rules. They're rooted in all the traditional principles around disclosures for advisors and funds, which is that you should say what you're going to do, and then you should do what you said you were going to do. So what you say and what you do should be very much aligned. There shouldn't be any daylight between those two things. But there's the new rules and the new various sources of guidance for these types of the reporting companies, you know, are focusing on new terminology, new ways to categorize how ESG affects what you're doing in an effort to create some standardization so that investors can have, and, and advisory clients and fund investors can have, you know, be comparing apples to apples and have a, a way to understand it sort of uniformly across different providers. But, you know, it sort of goes past just disclosure categories. You know, you also really need to consider, make sure that your investment process reflects whatever you said about how ESG is going to affect your strategy. Your investment process must be aligned so that it aligns with this strategy statements. Your proxy voting, your efforts against engagement of company management of the companies that you're invested in, those must be aligned. A really tricky topic right now is if at some point, the SEC is going to be expecting advisors and funds to say how they evaluate the results. If you had these ESG goals or these impact goals, how did your investment programs do against those objectives? Measurement is a really tricky topic right now. People are still trying to figure out what is the highest quality way to measure your results against your ESG and impact objectives. Then I think these companies also have to consider that they themselves have their own governance issues. They fund some often have boards. Investment advisors are themselves a type of operating company. So they have their own rules that apply to them as a corporate entity, and they have to think about how ESG affects so them in that regard, too. what happens if one of you guys gets a call from a client or potential client and says, hey, we got the resource guide. Where do we begin? How do you start with uh, really an answer to that question? Because unfortunately, my sense is you're still getting those. That's definitely true that people are getting their arms around what to do here. I mean, everybody has their own approach. If they're calling to talk about either starting or enhancing or strengthening an ESG program, and it's almost like an approach rather than a program, but I think internally they will have to have the right people to do it. What comes to mind is a lot of things we were talking about a little earlier about making sure that leadership has identified as a substantive matter, how they think their business is potentially impacted. And we and other advisors can help with that, of course. But usually companies, the leadership knows their own business the best. They're running the business. They understand the business. And they can usually see, well, we think maybe in five years we might have the supply issue or we're operating, for example, companies that are focused or have a, a large reliance on Europe are going to have a slightly different 
situation than companies that are not in Europe. There's pieces like that. But I think one of the most important things is first, an honest assessment of what they think the impacts are going to be, the larger impacts, putting aside compliance, putting aside what they may be required to say or not required to say. If they're in an area where their business or their sector or their consumer base or any critical component of their success is potentially impacted by ESG, and and again, climate is a focus, but there are other areas, labor issues, social issues, issues of equity, those can also come in. And if they first have some idea as a starting point, if they don't have that, I think that would be the first thing we would say is think about how you see your business and its five to 10 year strategy growth, where they want the business to be. How do you think it will be impacted by the larger components of ESG? Once they've got an idea on that, then they have to figure out, look at their peers, which is part of that too, looking at what their peers are doing in terms of there are companies who, despite it hasn't been fully mandated yet, they've already been out there making disclosures. And certainly companies that are either involved in industries that have been talking for a couple of years about how ESG issues were impacting them, they really should be focused on how, if they haven't, if this company that's coming to us, if they haven't already come up with their own framework or how they're impacted, they better focus on it. If their competitors think it applies, then certainly, they don't, again, they don't want to be caught lagging. And then once they've kind of got the idea of the impacts, what the peers are doing, I think they have to make a really honest assessment of what each company's capability is and do they have the right people in place? Do they need to bring in temporarily outside folks to help them? Do they need to have, sometimes I think we're going to see a lot of internal legal and reporting folks are for good or bad going to get more added to their plate because they'll have to deal with these incremental disclosures. But you can't figure out who needs to do what until, you know, what needs to be done. So I guess the first thing is companies need to first figure out how are they to be impacted commercially? Secondly, then looking at working with outside advisors, their internal and outside lawyers, their accountants, making sure that they have the right people. And part of this is there is a timeline ticking because these SEC rules probably, if they're approved on the typical timeline, we will start seeing issuers complying with these starting the reporting year for next year. So 2023, 2024. 2025 are really going to be big years in terms of folks bringing these things together. So to be ready for that, you have to work backwards from how would we, if you're an issuer and you think, or you're an operating company, or even we haven't talked a lot about emerging companies, but some of the same concerns fit there. If emerging companies don't take into account where they want to be later, again, looking down the road, I think they're going to have a lot of trouble catching up. So we would be focused on making sure that people identify the issues, they identify any sort of weaknesses in their internal ability to comply with requirements and more importantly, position themselves competitively in the market. And then getting in place the folks and the programs that you can use. And I think there'll be a lot of, as these regulations come into force, the one benefit of sudden change is that it forces policies to come into place. Those will be disclosed. I think that the folks that are right in the forefront and that push the hardest because they're the highest profile are going to lead the way in some respects. And those who are not left behind, but not necessarily at the the tip of the spear in terms of leadership at companies that don't have to be right out there being the first ones to disclose, they can get a lot of benefit by looking at how their peers are dealing with things and analogizing to other public disclosures.
So the key, I think, is to not wait. That's a critical takeaway. Those who wait, I think, will be very sorry that they wait. Gentlemen and lady, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, Sandra, I wanted to ask you maybe if you could say a few final words and then tell us where listeners might be able to go to find out more information and download a copy of the ESG resource. Sure, Tom. Thanks again so much for having us. The one point that I would leave people with is that if you're trying to figure out what you should do about having an ESG program, you should not think that you are going to start and end this process either by focusing on technical compliance with financial disclosure rules or with following the lead of the marketing department about what you want to be saying to your customers and outside audiences. Either of those two things being sort of the leading principle will you know, leave you, I think you'll come up short. This is really a project that involves strategy, mission, and culture, and it's multifaceted. It's much more than I want to say mere compliance, because Brian and I make much of our careers around helping people with compliance with other types of issues. But it's more than just technical compliance. It's really about integration and for some companies, even reinvention of how they think about themselves. If folks want to get a copy of the guide, it's available for download on the Hughes Hubbard and Reed website, which is hugheshubbard.com. All three of us are on LinkedIn and we're also have contact information at hugheshubbard.com. We really, really appreciate your giving us an opportunity to talk about this project. Thank you guys again. And my request is going to be that we be able to continue this conversation. Thank you so much. Sure. Take care. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this special two-part podcast series on the recent released Hughes Hubbard ESG Resource Guide. We're going to link to the resource guide in the show notes, as well as the profiles of the individual lawyers who were featured on this special two-part podcast series. I hope you'll enjoy listening to both episodes, and I look forward to visiting with you again next week on the ESG Report.